So I asked you a weird question a little bit earlier today, uh, and that was, uh, when you think about colors that are associated with boys or girls or men and women, uh, what comes to mind? So anybody have a thought on that? Pink and blue, right. This is what we think of, right? I mean, even when you have birth announcements, uh, it's a girl, it's a boy, whatever, whatever's going to be in the room or whichever you're sending out to uh, friends. If it's a boy, it's going to be filled with blue stuff. If it's a girl, it's going to be pink. Am I right? Of course. However, uh, that's only true now. About 100 years ago or more, that was not the case. <laughs> In fact, it was reversed. Can you believe it? That about 100 and some years ago, late 1800s, pink was actually a masculine color. It was a sign of strength. If men wore pink, it meant you were strong. And you know what color made you look wimpy and effeminate? Blue. Isn't that crazy? It's just a reminder that time changes, and the way we see things now is not necessarily the way it has always been. We're going to look at some biblical stuff today, uh, some words of Jesus specifically, and the way that we approach the language and the teaching that we're going to see in Jesus, we look at it a particular way because of the voices that have shaped our vision of it. So very brief history, uh, for the first 300 years or so of Christianity, uh, to be Christian was to be weak. It was to be running for your lives. Uh, it was to be done in hiding because it was seen as a dangerous cult. Uh, Judaism has kicked it out already, and so there's hardly any Jewish Christians left uh, three centuries into the, uh, into the whole tradition. And Rome isn't particularly happy with it either because it goes against the grain of Roman mythology and the emperor itself, because Christianity was claiming that the emperor was not God, and that drove them into the catacombs to worship. But then, almost overnight, Christianity became the official religion of the superpower, the Roman Empire under Constantine. They went from absolute powerlessness, where you could be harmed if not killed for being a Christian, to now all of a sudden you could be harmed or killed if you weren't a Christian. And that changed the way we thought about the faith. Fast forward centuries and centuries to about three, four hundred years ago, five hundred years ago even. And now you have some of the commentators who are still informing the way the church thinks about its faith and how it interprets its scriptures. And they're writing from now a place of Protestantism, but also power, coming at the whole text from a position of strength. But that's not how most of the Bible was written. And that's not how Jesus entered the world. Jesus, like Every person that he really had interaction with in a meaningful way was very poor. He lived in an oppressed land that was ruled by the Roman Empire. Nobody in anybody's memory had any recollection of them actually owning and having power over their own land in the time of Jesus. It had been centuries, really, before that had happened. When Jesus spoke, he offered hope because God was clearly at work through him, a very poor man. And that in itself turned the tables around so that every one of us, and if we were in ancient Israel, we all would represent the 99.9% .9 of people 
that are our neighbors, and we're all in the same poor boat together, and we feel powerless, and we, we hear the voices of those uh, literally above us saying, well, God clearly favors us because of our power and our position and clearly doesn't think much of you. When Jesus starts coming around and shows healing and grace to people who were poor just like him, and it was obvious that God was with them, people got the message and they believed it, that God actually cares even for the poor even for the powerless. And so we're going to see uh, some examples of that coming up. But what, what is hopeful to me in thinking about Black history this month, and I've been on my own little evolutionary journey uh, through this, uh, and being introduced to different characters that I didn't know anything about, but that have truly impacted my life and have impacted your life as well. Uh, to me, that's very inspiring, that even though uh, the origins of black history in America were absolutely horrific, and there's still remnants of it that are with us today, causing continual perpetual problems, even though that's the case, there are characters that were resilient and strong and brilliant and brought things into the world <laughs> from a position that you could never, ever imagine. And certainly in their origin story, you wouldn't. So today I offer you Louis Latimer, uh, born 1848, died in 1928. His parents escaped slavery, as I recall, from Virginia and went right into uh, some northern states where, where they could be free. And they lived around there for a while until uh, some interstate slave traders recognized who he was and had him arrested, tried to get him back to his slave owner. Now, it became a court case because now he's in a free state, so should he be treated like a slave? None other than Franklin Douglas uh, came to his defense and tried to make the case to the judge, and they got him off. And he didn't have to serve much time, and all he had to do was pay a fine, which they helped with. Pretty, pretty amazing. So they're going on about their lives, and then this case uh, called Dred Scott, uh, which a lot of us may not be as familiar uh, with, but Dred Scott uh, was a case that challenged the idea uh, that if you're free and if you're a slave in one state, uh, then you're all of a sudden, if you're in another state, you're not free. It happened like this. There was a slave and a slave owner that moved from, uh, just traveled from Missouri to Wisconsin, which was a free state. And then they went back to Missouri. The slave sued his slave owner because since he went to Wisconsin, where slavery didn't exist, he must have been freed. Therefore, he thought, I have a case to make that I should be free even though I'm back in Missouri. And the, the course, uh, the case came out like this, uh, where your freedom depended on the state where you started. So the states that were slavery abiding and holding and upholding, uh, if you were from that state, that's the law that you were under. It didn't matter that you went to another state. When Dred Scott came down, uh, Louis Latimer's father had to make a very difficult decision, knowing that it was a very good chance that he was going to be arrested soon, especially with his profile, and that he'd be taken back. And so to protect his family, he left his family. So now you've got a broken family because of a broken system that's happening uh, in our country. And yet, this Lewis Latimer, uh, he was able to get an apprenticeship in different uh, areas of industry and soon began to find out that he had his own gifts and his own brain power uh, to offer to the table. 
Uh, every summer, I bet um, a strong number of you turn on an air conditioner uh, in your home and those two weeks where it's actually hot in Napa, usually in November, right? <laughs> Did you know that one of the very first air conditioners was patented by Lewis Latimer, an evaporator air conditioner? Uh, some of us might call this a swamp cooler. Uh, but he learned through his study in physics that a swamp cooler could actually be very efficient and effective at bringing down the temperature uh, in a room. That's him. Uh, some other things that uh, he uh, brought. Uh, if you've ever gone to the bathroom uh, on a moving train, first of all, that's a real bummer. Sorry that you had to experience that. But if you did, uh, you can thank him a little bit that it wasn't worse. Because back in that day when rail was pretty much what you had, it must have been a horrific experience, and he improved it and patented uh, the improvement uh, coming from him, an African-American. Um, you've probably heard of Thomas Edison, but you probably haven't heard of some of his rivals. This guy worked for one of his rivals and helped figure out how to mass produce light bulbs. Now, in California, uh, you can't get, uh, you can't buy incandescent bulbs except for very specific circumstances and very specific bulbs. You can't get them anymore, so we're not as familiar with them. But there's a carbon filament uh, that's a part of an incandescent bulb. Lewis Latimer figured out how to mass produce that so that they wouldn't break in the process and light bulbs became possible for the multitude. Knowing that his company wanted to take home electricity and home lighting uh, to the rest of the world, Lewis Latimer literally wrote the book on how to employ electric lighting in a household and how to mass produce light bulbs. Any of you have a table lamp or a floor lamp in your home? You can thank him because the first patent for a table lamp was from Lewis Latimer fascinating. This kind of history come from that kind of a place. The reason I like these stories is because it, it, it kind of makes a point for us that if given the right environment, if given the right tools, people even from the horrific background of slavery can succeed and do well. There are some today, because of all the things that have happened to shape our history, there are still some people today that believe that African Americans are an inferior race of people. I'm not kidding. It's hard to get it out of them. Uh, they're generally not going to say it in parts where they don't feel comfortable saying it, and yet I've heard it in this community. And so I know that that idea exists, and yet we have these Lewis Latimers and many more like him that completely go against that, that if given the same opportunity or even a close to the same opportunity, they rise because we're all human beings and one race is not inferior to another. So inspiring to me. Yep, we've got this tension of there are some awful things, but yes, we have these examples of resilience and possibility and hope and strength that if we can feed, we'll just help eradicate more and more the inequality and inequity that we have in our country and is still with us. So that gets us to the story today about Jesus and what he has to say. Uh, because when we think about Jesus, we naturally see ourselves. And a lot of the churches that we've grown up in, um, the picture of Jesus that we had was a white dude from Sweden. <laughs> he even had blue eyes. That's the picture that is pretty famous. 
And that's not what Jesus looked like. Uh, Jesus was a Mediterranean man, and he looked the part. And he was from a region that was oppressed by the Roman Empire. He lived in oppression, and he had something to say to his friends uh, who also lived in oppression. And his words, at first glance, they don't seem particularly um, challenging. They seem a little odd, some of them, uh, but they don't particularly unsettle us. So let's just take a look at it, and let's see what you think. So Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. In the next passage, it says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as a true, uh, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, one quick word of note here. He starts both of these passages saying, you have heard the law that says, and then he follows it up with a, but I tell you. This tells us that Jesus is challenging uh, the way that things were thought and addressed, an interpretation of the law. Jesus is changing, giving a new interpretation of the law that most people were very familiar with. He's mixing it up. He has a new take on things. More on this loving your enemy stuff. He goes on and says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. All of you Enneagram ones who are bent on perfection, you just sigh when you hear Jesus say that. I knew it all along, and I'm so far from perfection. What am I going to do? Well, good news for you, there's a different word that we need to look at that is actually more appropriate than that word perfect. You know, when we read these things of Jesus, they're pretty familiar to us. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. We get that. Be generous. Love your enemies. It all sounds very nice. And when we read it, my hunch is that for the most of us, in case you've forgotten me teaching on this in previous years, which is why I'm bringing it up again, and we'll bring it up again and again and again, is when we hear this, it just seems like Jesus is saying, hey, be a nice person. That's kind of what I'm telling you to do. Be a nice person person. And of course, we should be nice people. But could it be that because of who was reading and studying these passages, that something was missed? Could it be that if the people who were offering commentary on these passages were from a place of power when they wrote it, is it possible that they missed some things that were present in the text that were coming from a position of oppression? Could it be that when you enter this from a place of oppression, you understand what Jesus is saying differently than you would if you read this from a position of power? The commentators that we've had for the last 500 years and more have written from a place of power. And some fairly recent scholarship within the last 100 years or less, really, 
have done some important homework to help us understand what these phrases of Jesus meant from a position of oppression, what he was saying, really, and what was being understood by the audience. And it is a direct hit about Black History Month in our country. So I just want to walk through these with you. So on the next slide, we're just going to knock these out one by one and help you understand what's going on. The first thing that we see here, I'm saying that Jesus was a nonviolent resistant leader because he was. Now, I need to understand that in and of itself made him fairly different because most of the people who claimed to be Messiah in the first century in ancient Israel, uh, they were planning to lead a revolt of violence. It's the only way they could think to, to beat Rome. They thought, you know, if there are just enough of us that gather our pitchforks and God gets behind us, we're going to be able to take out the Roman Empire. We just know it. We just need God to do it all over again like he did in Egypt. That was the great hope. Who will be faithful enough to pick up your pitchfork and go for it? Violent revolt was the only game in town that was the only message being said. But Jesus knew that would not work. He knew that every time a peasant would pick up a pitchfork, a Roman soldier would pick up the sword. Every time an Israelite would rise up, they would immediately be squashed like bugs by the Roman Empire, who were the military superpower in the world at that time. One of the last uprisings that happened uh, was in uh, the 60s A.D., uh, not the 1960s, the 60s. <laughs> and it was after Jesus had died, um, 30 years after that, uh, the new church was kind of making its way around. Some of the New Testament writings had come online, um, somewhat being circulated. The stories certainly were. And there was an uprising. And some Jewish people uh, took the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, which was a walled city, and they thought, okay, this is the beginning. We just got to wait for God uh, to make things happen. And there were, there were springs that fed, underground springs that fed Jerusalem so they could hang in there for a while. They had fresh water and supplies for a while. But the Roman government knew that it was just a matter of time before they started running out of food. And so the Roman Empire surrounded um, the city of Jerusalem and waited and waited and waited and waited until the people inside the walls started to starve. At that point, the Jewish men inside the walls asked for a deal. It's not appropriate for the women and children to suffer and die under this. You have no qualm with them, so let us let them out, and this will be between us menfolk and, and you Roman Empire soldiers. Okay, so Rome agreed. Why should we let the women and children suffer? So they opened the gate, the women and children went out as the husbands and fathers peered over the wall to watch to make sure that this transaction happened. The Roman Empire immediately in front of those men, fathers, uh, husbands, slaughtered the women and the children on the field in front of the city wall, and then proceeded to go into the city and wipe out every one of those Jewish men and destroy the temple of Jerusalem itself, and it has not been rebuilt since. You rise up against the superpower, you will be squashed like a bug. I just want to point out something really obvious, that all of us love our country. Our country has the greatest military might the world has ever seen. We have the greatest equipment, 
We have the largest military force of anywhere. When you and I think, we think from a position of superpower. That's our orientation. If you've ever traveled internationally, you travel with some confidence with your U.S. passport because you know it carries the full weight of the country who has endorsed you. I know I've felt that. Gone into, you know, somewhat dangerous countries that our own country says you probably shouldn't go there, like Kenya, and actually like Tijuana, Mexico. But I also knew that there was relative safety because a country doesn't want anything to happen to an American because they know what could happen to them if something terrible goes wrong. History certainly shows that. So we need to be honest with ourselves that first, when we, when we read about this, when we hear about this, you and I have a tough time relating to the audience of Jesus and to Jesus himself. Just be aware of it. And we're talking about the opposite side here of people who knew that they were under a superpower that was not caring for them. So Jesus, knowing that they were in the presence of a superpower that could not be beaten in a revolutionary normal manner with violence, he's offering a different take here. And he starts off with this eye for an eye stuff. The eye for an eye is deeply biblical. It's in the Old Testament. And basically what it says is this. If Lauren uh, punches me in the eye and blinds my eye, there's, there's going to be justice served. And the justice is, and I'm going to get the equivalent of an eye out of him, maybe even his eye. So I get to punch him in the eye, perhaps. Or maybe we'll figure out a dollar amount uh, for how much my eyesight was worth in that one eye, and he has to give me two donkeys and a couple of chickens, and we'll call it good. So maybe that's it. So it kind of makes sure that there's equality and justice, but then it also does something else. It, it makes sure that you don't go beyond that. So it's not an eye for three eyes. It's not an eye for four eyes. It's not like under the law, I could go to him and say, well, you just took my eye out. So I'm going to take your eye and I'm going to take three donkeys and four chickens. The law would not allow for that. That's what the eye for an eye thing is all about. Equal justice under the law. And Jesus is saying, you can't think that way as people who are oppressed under an oppressor. Because that kind of justice is not going to be afforded for you because they don't care about you. They're not worried about your justice, those who are in power, because their world is fine. And so he's, asking, he's interchanging, he's teaching stuff uh, to the disciples about how do you interact? How do you do something to cause change uh, when this is the case? So I'm going to need Lauren's help, if you wouldn't mind, coming up on stage, Lauren. All right. As you can see, he is uh, wearing protective gear, so he's going to be safe today, everybody. Come on up on stage, and let's see here. Um, let's have you stand right there and face me. All right. So in the olden days, in Jesus' day, if I were to come up and I was to punch Lauren right in the nose, he could take me to court, and he could sue me for X amount of dollars uh, because of that great offense. However, if Lauren, being an equal to me, we're equal in our stature and the society and all that. We're both menfolk. If I, on the other hand, would have chosen to backslap him on his right cheek, he could sue me for twice as much, even though it didn't hurt half as much. You know why? Because this is an act of an aggressor over a subordinate. This is something you do 
uh, to a slave or a servant or a child or a wife. People who are under the authority of another. For me to do this to an equal was deeply offensive in that culture. He could be sued for twice as much. Isn't that fascinating? So what does Jesus suggest you do? So I hit you like this. Jesus says, offer the left cheek as well. Now we look at this as the sign of passivity, like, oh, don't get in a fight. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. If Lauren comes back and shows me his left cheek, so turn your face just a little bit, I can't backslap him anymore. If I'm going to do any more, I'm going to have to use my fist. And if I'm using my fist against him, I am saying with my fist, he is an equal. He is not a subordinate. You see? This is this crazy, subtle subordination thing of challenging the positions that were there in that ancient culture without increasing the violence. <laughs> the offender doesn't want to hit him with a fist now, even though he really kind of does, but he knows he doesn't want to because of what message that would send about their status together. Isn't that fascinating? Turn the other cheek is not to be passive. Turn the other cheek is treat me as an equal because we are. Fascinating. Thank you, Lord. Good job. All right. Excellent work. Well, I could have Lauren help me with this one. If they ask for your shirt, give them your coat. We could have Lauren standing naked before you today, but I will not ask such things of this uh, crosswalker at this moment. <laughs> Here's what's going on with uh, give them your shirt and your coat. So remember, we're talking about extremely poor people. And the shirt that we're talking about that a person could be sued for, uh, the context is a person who that's their only piece of clothing other than their coat. Now, in ancient law and the way in Jesus' culture, you couldn't take somebody's coat, at least for overnight. If somebody owed you a significant amount of money, you could hold on to their coat so they could go work for the day in their shirt, their one and only shirt, but at nighttime, you had to return their coat to them. That was the law because they recognized that if they didn't have a coat, they would die uh, from exposure. So what we have here is a very, very poor person who probably found themselves indebted to whoever has the note for them, and they're unable to make their payment. And so the person who probably doesn't really need their money, but wants to make the point, is taking him to court uh, so he can get this one tunic, this one shirt, that what is he going to do with anyway? His only purpose in taking this guy to court is to humiliate the poor person further. There's no other real benefit being gained here other than to humiliate the person who is being sued. So what does Jesus say? Does he says to take up arms, draw your sword? No. He says, if you're forced to do that in court, go ahead and give him your shirt and then fully disrobe. Because in that day and age, when you fully disrobe, you have created an immense amount of embarrassment for the entire court and especially shamed the one who is suing you, because how dare they sue you for the one and only shirt that you have? A nonviolent way to shine a light on the injustice that was taking place in the courtroom itself. It's fascinating. When we get to this, go the extra mile. Uh, that's even a tagline for a gas station. You ever seen that? Bought a cup of soda or whatever, and right on, right on their cups, all their cups 
go the extra mile or just the extra mile. And we take this to mean, oh, well, the thing to do is to, you know, be a nice person, go the extra mile. If a soldier wants you to carry his stuff, well, just go the extra mile because you're such a nice person. That's what Jesus must be talking about. Well, no, he's not. By law, Roman soldiers could enforce any Jewish person uh, to carry their pack, their heavy pack, for one mile and not one step further. There was no way around that. There was no resisting that. So Jesus does not suggest to put up a fight when he's wanting to throw your pack, his pack on you. Jesus is saying something else. He's saying, okay, go ahead and take the pack for that first mile. And when you get to the end of the first mile, keep carrying the pack for another mile or more. And the reason Jesus wants and suggests this is because he knows that eventually they're going to run into a commanding officer. And the commanding officer is going to see this guy and just check in, how long have you been uh, carrying this guy's pack? Or maybe the Jewish person themselves says, hey, I thought the law was uh, that we're only supposed to carry for one mile. I've been carrying this thing for two, three miles now. Immediately, the power is shifted. And this bully, the Roman soldier who forced you to carry their pack, now has to answer to authority himself. And he is in an awkward position. It is a turning the tables on the problem. It is bringing a light onto the injustice that was pushed on the people of oppression. Does that make sense? Not being a nice guy, shining a light on what needs to be challenged. When he talks about give to those in need with generosity, he's realizing that the people who have money uh, are dealing with extremely poor people and just asking them, you know, if you have something, if you have food to eat, share it with people who don't have food to eat and don't charge them interest on it because they can't pay it. Have compassion on the people that are around you that need help and just do it. That's easy enough. Love your enemies. This actually was quite bold and was counterintuitive. It was not the way Jewish people used to think. In fact, um, if you do some study on the culture uh, that Jesus lived in, uh, the prevailing view of love your enemies uh, was love your enemies if they're Jewish. But if they're not Jewish, don't love them. Because that's a different category of enemy altogether. When Jesus uses this phrase, loving your enemies, he's not talking about just fellow Jewish people. He's talking about all people. That's the context that Jesus is talking about, and that's why it was revolutionary. Now, why is he saying that? Because the peace that Jesus is after is not a temporary peace that is brought about by force, but Jesus is after a depth of peace called shalom, which is where real peace happens. Now, we see this kind of dynamic, the differences between kinds of peace and a very small scale and very large scales. Uh, we see it happen in relationships uh, between friends or lovers. Uh, conflict happens, and sometimes one of the partners, that uh, can be male or female really, um, will, um, will raise their voice, raise themselves in authority over the other to intimidate the other one to be quiet. And the lesson learned for the one who chose to sit with that is don't raise your voice again, don't challenge again, or you're going to get more where that came from. You're going to get yelled at, you're going to get mean things said, all of that. That happens all the time. Now, in a sense, peace has been created because there's no more fighting, because the person who just got yelled at decided, okay, this is not worth it anymore. And the person who is feeling uncomfortable has also learned 
don't bring it up anymore because you don't want, you're walking on eggshells and that's okay because it's better than the alternative. That happens all the time. In other situations in peace, we understand this was how Rome, I mean, Rome said, you know, we are, we bring, we come in peace. Uh, that was their, that was their thing. But the peace of Rome came with a really, really, really big military presence. A really, really, really big military presence will keep people down, but it will not create peace. It will keep conflict down, but it will not treat the undercurrents that bring the conflict to bear. Jesus understands that if true peace is going to happen, it requires a heart change. It requires a vision change for how we even see people. And so long as we see the other as different, as less than unworthy of respect or love, we will treat them accordingly. This actually is a strategy that's been employed in horrific ways. In um, Nazi Germany, uh, the way they got away uh, with eradicating millions of Jewish people is they started the campaign, the propaganda campaign saying Jewish people are not to be trusted. They are less than human. They're certainly less than German. And because they had enough people buy into the propaganda, the lie that that was true, it became easier and easier for everybody to be okay with just dismissing the world of these horrible, horrible people who are really less than human. And so they were able to to take human beings and do horrific things to them and kill them, and that's called the Holocaust. It was a strategy. In the United States, we did the same thing, and not just in the United States. This is happening in Europe and then definitely made it to the United States, where when it came to African people, we looked at them as less than human. This was part of the rhetoric. It's part of the theology that helped us do this in the first place, and it wasn't just in America. It was happening all over Europe. You can read all about that in some articles that I've kicked out to you, but these, this thing was the reality there, but what happens when we do that? When we say that the other person is not quite human, it gives us the right to treat them in inhuman ways, and we do. You know, a crazy thing happened in the United States during World War II. We had uh, several um, uh, POW camps for Germans in the United States. Uh, there was one in South Dakota. Uh, there were some in the Deep South. And these German POWs who were on American soil, they enjoyed relative freedom. Uh, there are even stories about how um, they would be let out of their camp and go help with people's gardening. They would teach in schools. Uh, they eventually assimilated into our own uh, culture um, up in South Dakota, as I recall, and this particular camp. Uh, they even had a, quite, a, quite a cultural scene. And so uh, musical instruments and artistic stuff was purchased for the prisoners uh, to put on concerts for the surrounding communities. I mean, I hear this stuff, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. But that's true. That really happened here. Now, meanwhile, uh, uh, Japanese United States citizens 80 years ago were interred, were taken from their homes as U.S. citizens and taken out in the middle of nowhere where they had to wait it out and abject poverty while they were there. Why? Why the difference? Why do we treat one group who have citizenship in the United States and we cart them away, and yet another group, which are clearly enemies, or fighting against us, we bring them over and treat them so well? Most well, because one of them looked like the majority of Americans and one of them did not. 
when we distinguish as other, we very easily go to the next place of treating them like other, and often in very inhuman ways. Jesus was being as profound then as he is today. What does it mean for us to dehumanize someone? And if we dehumanize anyone, what does that really mean about God for us? If God decides by our calculations who is worthy of love, and who the heck are we to suggest that we are the ones who should be the special recipients of the favor and love of God over someone else? This is why Jesus' word was so penetrating for his original audience. He's saying, no, if you really believe the love of God is the love of God for every single human being on this planet, how does that play out for you? How are you seeing with eyes of love? The final thing here, really, we need to get rid of the word perfect, because he said, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, this original language, uh, it comes from the Greek word uh, and can be translated in multiple ways. Remember, the Bible is not written in English. And this particular word Paul uses in some of his letters, uses it multiple times. But the word Paul uses when he uses the same root Greek word is mature. And that's probably a better word uh, for this particular passage. So Jesus is not saying you must be perfect, which is absolutely impossible. But he can say to us, grow up, become mature in who you are as a human being walking with God. When I see all these things, I see a very different picture of Jesus, one that I would never have thought about because of my position in life and who I am and how I've been raised. I've been, I've been in middle class my entire life. I've been mostly around people who look like me my entire life with a few exceptions here and there. That's my worldview. That's the worldview of my family. They wouldn't know otherwise. They wouldn't know to ask certain questions. They wouldn't know to notice certain things because it hasn't affected us. And so when we see other people groups that seem to be struggling or seem to be causing problems, we just kind of wonder what is wrong with them. And rather than get to a blaming kind of a state, maybe people like me need to ask more questions like, what, what are the undercurrents? What are the things that exist that are still with us that maybe need to be looked at? Because if I see Jesus and I read him, he's saying, these are things that we need to do to say, there's a problem here that we need to understand more fully. And I got a great example of this from my own uh, family history. My dad was a pastor, and uh, the churches that we grew up in, that I grew up in, uh, weren't terribly diverse. Uh, we had some Laotian refugees uh, in um, our Prairie Village, Kansas, suburb of Kansas City, a church that we helped bring over and that was about as much diversity as there wasn't much more than that. I had some Asian Americans there. They were good friends. Um, but I asked my dad about his previous church before that, which was in Topeka, Kansas. Topeka, Kansas is where Brown versus the Board of Education went down. And that, that ruling actually is complicated. <laughs> Trying to do a good thing messed up another thing. But I was wondering for my dad, who was a pastor there in the mid-60s, I wondered, Hey, what was it like being a pastor in Topeka, Kansas, in the middle of the civil rights movement, in the epicenter of a major court ruling? And my, <laughs> my dad said, which is, I'm not slighting him in the least. I'm just using this as an example of, to prove my point. He said, you know, I didn't really hear much about it. <laughs> so I hear that, that the church really didn't talk about it all that much. Why? Because they were white. Because it didn't affect them. 
They weren't really thinking about it. It wasn't their problem. I wonder if we can hear Jesus as one who is speaking from a very different perspective. And the next slide, and I know this is uncomfortable stuff. I don't really like teaching about it, even though I think I need to, because this is what Jesus is saying to us. But I, you know, Jesus' instruction was to be actively engaged in shining a light on injustice and, and nonviolent ways. And so I asked some questions. What does this mean for people of faith following in Jesus' footsteps? What injustices are we supposed to be, are we aware of? And what injustices are we willingly, willfully, there it is, willfully ignorant about that we just don't really care, don't really want to know? And what are we doing to foster change? We need to shine a light on stuff. One of the most painful lights to shine is on ourselves. Uh, you know, the church has this reputation that is slowly eroding of a place where you don't show your true colors. That used to be the thing. You dress up super nice to hide the pain and the struggle that you were going through and to honor God. I get that. But, but the church was the last place where you would be vulnerable. Church was a place where you had to put on your Sunday face and make the best of it. That's starting to change. It's starting to change, but not fast enough. Because as long as we tell ourselves there's no problem here, the problems aren't going to get fixed. Problems aren't going to get addressed in here, let alone anywhere else. Jesus is <laughs> a radical teacher, a radical teacher. Do we have eyes to see? Louis Latimer uh, is the guy who invented the household lamp to shine a light for us to see easier. Isn't it ironic <laughs> that the one who gave us the light in our homes uh, is the one who may be less welcome in our homes, is the one whose light we don't really want to see shining in different things and complex problems. I don't, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, even though I know this is very uncomfortable. I take no joy in that, but I hope beyond the uncomfortability, I hope you'll ask some questions like, man, what, what do I do with this Jesus? who is speaking from a different perspective and who's challenging us to think in different ways. What do we do with that? And what does it mean if we claim to follow him? So with that, let's pray together. So just ask for you to be still for a moment. And God, I'm asking that your spirit um, just help us identify one or two takeaways from today, even if that takeaway is, I kind of hate Pastor Pete right now. <laughs> That's okay. Even if that takeaway is, I kind of hate this subject. Or maybe it's a particular thing that Jesus taught about. I don't know. But God, I'm just asking you to help us just to identify one or two. And Spirit of God, I'm asking you to help us some more by helping us wonder, why did those one or two things pop up? What is it about being angry with Pastor Pete or angry with the subject or frustrated or questioning about this particular passage or whatever? Why is that? 
a thing that has popped up today. Just give us a hint, God. And finally, Spirit of God, who knows us so well, where there is no corner of darkness in our lives, who loves us anyway. Spirit of God, what are you calling us to do today in response to what our takeaways are? I don't know what that nudge would be, but I know to a person, God, that what that nudge is, is very specific to us. And I pray, God, that we will have the courage and the faith in you enough, you who love us, to move forward with you. To that end, we repeat this uh, prayer and say together, be on the screen, you can open your eyes, the rendition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, crafted by Jim Cotter. Let's say it out loud together. Eternal spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. And the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Uh, if you're in a particular studious uh, mood, um, the academic uh, work behind this stuff that I've given you today is in my blog. I actually give you the source from uh, a guy who wrote a book, um, talk about, it's, it's called uh, If Jesus is Lord, and he gives you the footnotes for the academic scholars that provide all this information, which I shared for you today. It's a 13-page blog post, so I hope you enjoy that. Uh, if you have trouble sleeping, it's there for you, uh, but uh, the, the scholarship and the academics is legit, and I hope it's helpful. All right, thanks for coming. See you next week. Thank you.